Hey everyone, Becky from The Shift Team here, and we're back with a new mini episode to help everyone with some quick lessons to get great ideas and tools for gymnastics. Hip micro-instability and labral injuries in gymnasts. This week's mini podcast episode is a sneak peek of one of last year's Shift Symposium's guest lectures, Hip Micro-Instability and Label Injuries in Gymnasts, presented by Dr. Keisha Bates, physical therapist and former collegiate gymnast. Keisha, unfortunately, has had a lot of hip injuries herself as a result of outdated flexibility methods such as oversplits and using ankle weights. She is now on the other side of 10 hip surgeries. Hi, my name is Dr. Keisha Bates. I'm a sports physical therapist out in Wyoming. I am a gymnastics coach, a former gymnast. I'm a researcher, do a lot of gymnastics researcher, as well as an adjunct professor for physical therapy school. I want to thank Dave for letting me um, speak on the hip. I am so honored to be a part of such an all-star cast. I don't I don't think I belong here, but I'm still honored nonetheless. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak today. Um, I'm going to talk about hip microinstability and labral injuries in gymnasts. I have no disclosures, no financial conflicts of interest um, to disclose relating to the topic of this presentation. As an outline, we're gonna start by going over the background of hip injuries, and especially in gymnastics, and then we'll go through the anatomy and some anatomical considerations when looking at hip microinstability. Then we're gonna define what hip microinstability is, as well as go through some pathologies that typically relate and go hand in hand with that condition. Uh, we'll go through physical therapy options, rehabilitation screens, exams, exercises, and return to sport um, progressions. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about how we got here in the sport of gymnastics, as well as what we can do next to uh, make sure we're better prepared for the future for ourselves and for athletes and um, for their safety. So as a background, um, hip injuries really only account for about three to three and a half percent of injuries in gymnastics. Now of that, 60% are labral injuries. So that is a big number there, but um, they're really often overlooked in the literature. And I think this is for a few reasons. Uh, one is they tend to be more overuse versus traumatic. So with rep repetitive motions, repetitive overuse, repetitive loading, um, I think these injuries pop up maybe five plus years down the road um, and are often attributed to a tendonitis, hip flexor issues, or something like that, and overlooked um, versus a traumatic like ACL tear or something. I also know that it's a newer research field, and this um, plays a big role where the hip is not nearly as up-to-date in terms of research um, and systematic reviews as the shoulder and the knee and stuff like that. So we're a little behind on the hip. Uh, it's also, like I said, a longer-term issue, I think, that gets lost in literature follow-ups because it's um, potentially much further down the road that it causes issues. So we'll start with an anatomical overview. So this plays a big role in why somebody potentially can do a beautiful ring light versus like not even be able to touch their toes. Um, we'll go through it by three layers. So we'll start with layer one is a bony alignment layer. Then we'll go through layer two is the joint capsule, um, static stabilizers, ligaments, labral tissue, stuff like that. Then we'll go through layer three being the dynamic layer, the muscles, the soft tissues, and the tendons. And then we'll briefly talk about some x-ray measurements that you'll want to know when speaking with physicians and surgeons and seeing um, these gymnasts before and after surgery since some of that will change. So from a bony alignment standpoint, you have the femur, uh, you have the pelvis, and then you have the acetabulum. So the acetabulum is the socket. Uh, the femur is going to be the long leg bone um, that comes in to meet the acetabulum 
highlighted here in blue. Um, now of these three bones, each of them has slight variations that can occur in them that is gonna change the alignment, the anatomy, um, and kind of what happens at the pelvis as we do certain genetic skills and into certain positions and flexibility, stuff like that. So at the femur, you can have a, angle, a change in your angle of inclination. So that essentially means that if we look at this picture here, the angle at which the femoral neck and head meets the acetabular socket can change. And this is going to affect, as you can imagine, if someone does splits and straddles and stuff like that, um, how far they're able to go before they start to get bony contact. Another thing that can happen at the femur is what's called femoral version. So you can get antiversion or retroversion. This is essentially a rotation of where the femoral head meets the acetabulum. So it can be slightly antiverted, and that's going to cause a little bit more intoing, but also stress the anterior capsule quite a bit more. Or you can be retroverted, which is going to um, lead to a lot more external rotation, but also stretches um, and stresses the capsular differently. Um, at the pelvis, so that socket joint, essentially in a normal situation, you're going to have 20 degrees of anterior tilt and uh, 45 degrees of lateral tilt. So that's how it's typically oriented. However, this can be variable. And when you do get some variations here, although slight, you can potentially get some um, changes in anatomical presentation. So the last thing, uh, acetabulum is going to be 175 degrees of coverage over the femoral head. So that just means it's going to cover that femoral head about 170 degrees. Um, and that's normal, but you can have over and under coverage, which we'll talk about moving forward, which plays a role in um, someone's stability and ability to um, reach certain positions. So moving into the uh, static layer here. So the ligaments in the joint capsule, there's three main ligaments that are gonna spiral around the femoral head and they're really gonna do a huge, huge role in stabilizing the joint and holding the femoral head in place. So we'll start with the Y ligament or ligament of Bigelow, which is the iliofemoral ligament. It's gonna spiral across the front of the joint blending with the joint capsule. This one's huge in anterior joint stability. So it's gonna start from the base of the AIIS the lateral arm is going to run obliquely across the front of the joint to the anterior greater trochanter and attach there. Then the medial arm is going to run inferiorly to the lesser trochanter. And both play a huge role in um, limiting anterior translation of the femoral head, which is hugely important for gymnastics and hyperflexible athletes. It also limits external rotation in hip flexion as well as internal and external rotation in hip extension, so the back leg of a split leap. The ischiofemoral ligament spirals superior laterally from the um, ischium or the sit bone uh, to the base of the greater, greater trochanter. This plays a big role in limiting deep hip flexion, um, internal rotation in hip flexion, as well as posterior translation um, or sliding backwards of the femoral head. The pubofemoral ligament is going to run from the anterior acetabulum inferiorly and posteriorly, creating a sling and wrapping around the femoral head before it um, blends with the joint capsule. This one's really important for limiting inferior translation, so in straddle positions, um, as well as external rotation in hip extension, so back leg of the split leap again. Uh, the ligamentum teres is a ligament that comes from the acetabulum to the femoral head, and it's going to be really important in limiting femoral distraction um, or coming out of the joint this way. The labrum. So the labrum is highlighted in blue here. It creates a rim around the acetabulum to help deepen the hip socket. So it deepens it anywhere from 20 to 35%, depending on the study. Um, but it also helps maintain a negative pressure or a seal that helps to hold that femoral head into the joint so that the um, femur doesn't move around too much or um, sublux. 
It also helps to distribute forces. So we know with gymnastics and landing, there's a lot of high landing forces. And this labrum um, has a really big role in dissipating and distributing the load through the hip joint. Uh, as well as playing a really, really big role in stability. So we'll talk about what happens to the stability of the hip joint if this labral tissue becomes jeopardized, but it has a big role in um, not only congruency, but also in um, stabilizing the hip joint. So onto layer number three, this is our um, dynamic stabilizers. These are gonna be huge, especially in a situation where there's some micro instability present um, to be able to stabilize and really centralize the femoral head within the acetabular socket. So, Coming from all sides of the joint, you have your psoas, your rectus, uh, you have adductors, longus, magnus, brevis, pectineus, your glute muscles, all your glute muscles, your hamstrings, all your hamstrings, as well as deep rotators. So they're all going to play a significant role in helping to stabilize um, dynamically that hip joint, especially if it has some um, hyperflexibility and moves around a lot. They're key. Um, to note is the... From uh, rectus femoris and iliopsoas, which run right along the front of the hip joint. Those are going to be very, very critical dynamic stabilizers moving into hip extension because of um, the anatomical uh, very or anatomical line that they have running across the very front of the hip joint there. It's super important um, to help stabilize the anterior capsule and the anterior hip. So briefly, we'll talk about two x-ray measurements um, that are really important to know when you're dealing with someone who's got a hip injury or is seeing a hip surgeon or is potentially getting a hip surgery or anything like that. Um, you're going to want to know these numbers to talk to physicians and have um, good dialogue with them, as well as knowing uh, pre and post-operatively potentially what was affected. So the lateral center edge angle is an angle formed by a perpendicular line through the center of the femoral head to the lateral most bony prominence of the superior acetabulum. This essentially just looks at acetabular coverage. So he said 170 degrees was normal. That would be your, your 25 to 35 degree lateral center edge angle here. And that just means we have normal coverage. Now, anything less than that, we start to move into borderline dysplasia and hip dysplasia. These here, 20 to 25 or less than 20, essentially mean that there's a lack of acetabular coverage over, over the femoral head, which just means that that femoral head can slide around and move around a little bit easier within the joint. On the other side of that, an overcoverage or greater than 35 degrees of a lateral center edge angle starts to look at like a femoral acetabular impingement and a bony overcoverage there, which means moving into certain range of motions, you're going to get bony abutment happening faster or earlier on in that range. The tonus angle is another measurement um, to be aware of, and that essentially measures the acetabular roof, or again, the overcoverage of the acetabulum. It's um, measured by a line through the top of the femur to the lateral most bony prominence of the superior acetabulum. Here, anywhere from zero to eight, even zero to 10 is considered normal. More than that starts to indicate that this line right here is indicating that that coverage um, is maybe a little, a little bit less than um, sufficient, again, allowing for more motion within the socket of that femoral head. So what does all this mean when you're looking at um, helping gymnasts with hip pain? So really it means two things. It means one, an increased capsular and ligamentous laxity due to potentially improper stretching techniques where you really um, cranked on that anterior capsule and stressed that capsule too much can lead to some micro instability within the hip joint, which will then in turn increase stresses on the labrum potentially causing problems. The second point is that this means a gymnast can be both loose and tight. So if someone has micro instability or increased capsular laxity, there's gonna be a lot more motion within the hip socket. Your body doesn't like this increased motion. So what it does is it causes reflexive muscular tightening 
to protect the joint. Now this makes the gymnast feel tight. And so they go and they stretch and they do a stretch like this here. And they're cranking on that anterior capsule, causing more micro instability, more joint motion, which the body doesn't like. So it says I need to be tighter. So the muscles tighten up, they feel inflexible. They feel like they need to stretch. So you just cause this loop essentially that's um, counterintuitive, counterproductive. Um, and really if they're going to stretch muscle, they need to be stretching muscle like this picture here where she's got her um, pelvis tucked, her belly in and she's stretching um, hip flexors and quads and she's not cranking on anterior capsule. If you want to hear the rest of this lecture, you can access it on the SHIFT website. The 2023 SHIFT Symposium runs from Friday, June 23rd to Sunday, June 25th, where you can learn everything you need to know about gymnastics medical care, gymnastics coaching, and gymnastics strength and conditioning. So don't miss out. Head over to shiftmovementscience.com. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to that episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it and got a lot of value out of it. I just want to let you know before we sign off here that a couple things we'd love for you to do. So one is please just make sure that you rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you're listening, because that really does help the episode grow quite a bit. And then second, if you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you left us a review as well and told us what you liked about it. You know, what information was useful, what things were not useful, would you like to know more about, what guests do you want to have on in the future? And then also as you kind of go about your day, if you found something really useful, just toss it up on social media. We love to hear from people on Instagram or Twitter or, you know, all the different websites that they're using for social media. Facebook is great too. But yeah, let us know what you like, because honestly, the podcast comes from people who just tell us what they're finding useful. And that's how we create the next set of content. So yeah, tag us in the podcast or tag us online, whatever you're doing it and uh, let us know what you think. Thanks.